So shifting gears now for us here this morning. Um, a couple months, three months ago, four months ago, I can't remember how long time passes so quickly these days. Uh, we did a series, and we actually used the M word on the series, which was the word mystic, which uh, dredged up a little stuff off the bottom of the aquarium for a few of us. But, um, you know, the, a mystic is, is a contemplative to us, maybe a contemplative on steroids, but still a contemplative, which is someone who believes that God can only be approached non-verbally, non-rationally, you know, through silence. Everything that we were just praying just now through the worship period, that is a contemplative, that God can actually be known, but not through our intellect. And a mystic is someone who believes just that and then has visions and, and, and revelations on top of the silence and the solitude. And so we went through, we went through about six of them. In fact, it was exactly six of them. And, uh, Couple of was it last month or six weeks ago? Frank had done Francis of Assisi, and so he came and and he actually dressed and spoke in the first person as Francis of Assisi, and it was a wonderful time. We thought you'd bring we'd bring another one to you, and she was actually the one who started this whole first person business. And um, would you please welcome Julian of Norwich? Being Nina at this church, I've never once sat up here on a Sunday morning. But Julian is welcome here this morning. And I do have to say that with all the angels that surround everything we do here, I feel most welcome to come back from the dead and share my story. Truly. Um, The story of my life has been preserved through my writings. And I was most fortunate to receive 16 showings is what I call them as I lay on a deathbed. And because of what I wrote, much of the theology and what I saw led to a very contemplative practice in my later years. So I'm so grateful for this chance and for the welcome from all of you. And I wanted to, um, I penned something so I can tell you my story in a fairly um, methodical, sequential sense so you can follow along with me how I got to where I was and why I chose that lifestyle. Does that make sense? Cool. Um, I don't think they said cool. In 1342... Maybe they said, who who knows? (laughs) I was born in November of 1342, and I died in 1430. So I was 88 years old when I died. And I was, after my death, I was known as an English anchoress, and I also became known as an important Christian mystic and theologian. I definitely didn't start out that way. Um, The city I was from was called Norwich. Um, It was uh, both sophisticated and dynamic, and it was a port city on the eastern coast of England. In the 14th century, it was known mainly for its production of wool because we had so many sheep. It was a bustling port city, so there was much trade from other foreign countries. We traded with what was called Zealand, the Low Countries, and France mainly. 
and people and nationalities from all over the known world settled in this little city. And life in our little town centered in two main central points. There was the castle and there was the cathedral. Little was known about my early life, but I've been able to put this much together. Norwich as a city was about 600 years old at the time of my birth, and the population at that time was about 10,000 people. A typical day for me would start early in the morning. About the break of dawn, my mother and I would attend early Mass. The church dominated much of all of our lives, morning to evening to bells and vespers and prayers and community life. Um, After Mass, my mother and I would go off to market. Latin was the language of the church. French was the language of the marketplace. But English was known as the carnal language, which came from the countryside, from the people. Within ten years of my birth, though, the king of England um, made the English that was spoken in Norwich, Norwich to be the official language of the country, partly due to the continual wars with France. Um, English, for me, became a language that had few formal grammatical rules and spellings, and words could be created and used as life necessitated. It's really a lot like that today as well, if you notice. Um, For me, English became a gift in which I could express the intimacy and the power of God that I experienced in my own life. Though my father was a successful merchant, I always had an interest in how to bring my heart closer to God. My mother taught me to read and write, following closely with the teachings of the church. I received the sacraments as I grew up. We cared for each other, the sick, the maimed, the living, and the dying. We lived as a close community, sharing a deep, common life, knowing intimately one another's welfare. I experienced human character as I later wrote, quote, sometimes good and gentle, sometimes cruel and oppressive. Um. Of all the many types of priests, monks, and friars abounding in our bustling city, I was always drawn to the Franciscans, who taught me that I shouldn't seek revelation through prayer, nor ask for special secret messages from God, but rather I should seek a feeling, or rather an alignment of heart and purpose with the heart of God, to seek for a oneness of experience. I may add, this oneness became the very heartbeat of my entire life, after I experienced my 16 showings. My greatest accomplishment actually is twofold. I actually wrote the first book known to be composed by a woman in English. And um, my second accomplishment was actually the nature of my theological content of my book, which far exceeded anything I was ever educated by or taught by anyone on the earth. My book was titled Revelations of Divine Love, and I wrote it around 1395. Over the ages, I've been called different things, Julian of Norwich mainly because of my role as an anchoress in St. Julian's Church. I became known as a spiritual authority within my community where I also served as a counselor and an advisor. 
I am formally commemorated with a feast day on May 8th in the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, and Evangelical Lutheran Church. I haven't yet been formally beatified or canonized in the Roman Catholic Church, but I am popularly venerated as by Catholic as a holy woman of God and am therefore at times referred to as St. Julian, Blessed Julian, or Mother Julian. The church in my day was beginning to take violent measures to protect its power. The church had actively banned the use of English in religious contexts, except in sermons and confessions. Unfortunately, some poor friends of mine were actually carried out of the city gates of Norwich and burnt if an English-language Bible was discovered in their homes. Fear was used to control us, but I learned from the crucified Jesus that I was utterly safe in his love. I understood that safety didn't come from bowing to the forces of fear, but rather from submitting myself in love to the one who is love. I realized I was in a precarious position as an English woman writing a religious book in English. I knew that love would keep me safe. This is one thing I did write, quote, and thus will I love and thus do I love, and thus I am safe. One of the reasons for me seeking an anchorage position in the Church of St. Julian was actually the safety and solitude the lifestyle would afford me as I sought to undertake the writing of my book. I would be able to be freed from the burdens of daily life and give myself to prayer, counseling, and writing. The idea of this anchorage became more and more appealing to me as I grew in the knowledge and revelations of the giftings I received in my showings from Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a little bit about an anchorage, because I know I keep using that word, and it's not familiar to most people in the 21st century. Um, Anchorage comes from the Greek word meaning to withdraw. There was a little room that was actually built in the actual wall of the church in Saint Julian, at, at St. Julian's, and it was a small cell that was encased where I agreed to live out the rest of my days once I entered. When I moved in, they sealed the anchorage shut, except for three windows. I understood very well what my limitations would be, but to me... The limitations were doorways to freedom of the Spirit and the love of God, as I could pursue him and him only through my activities of prayer, writing, counseling, presence, contemplative prayer, and attending Mass. One window of myself faced the church where I could see and hear daily Mass. The second window opened onto a servant's quarters through which the activities of daily life transpired, and the third window opened onto a small porch where I received visitors. When I entered the anchorage, we actually had a ceremony at St. Julian's where they actually came into the church and put dirt on the ground, and I laid down in the dirt, and they said prayers over me for my funeral because there was this understanding that my life as a, a free well-being was ending, and I was choosing to be enclosed and encased in literally what became my tomb for the rest of my life. But I did this 
completely willingly. It was a practice that was very common in the 1300s, began about the 1200s, and there were many written records of men and women who actually felt this calling and committed to this lifestyle. I was supported by the goodwill and charity of the people of the parish as they supplied me with food, clothing, and shelter. In turn, they deeply desired my heartfelt prayers, both for the living and the dead among us. One of our customs in these medieval times was that people would pay money to have someone like me pray for their beloved dead relatives, hoping to propel them from the flames of purgatory and get out of there quicker into heaven. Um, It was a very um, solid belief that when anyone died, they spent a lot of time in purgatory, and the wealthy were able to shorten that time if the right prayers were prayed. In any case, this money sustained me as I committed myself to this task. I also had the wonderful opportunity to act as their counselor as I listened to their life sorrows. Many people gave me what they could to pay for my spiritual advice in return for my own daily sustenance. The scant financial records of our time recorded four such donations for my prayers, which is actually a very small number considering the number of years I lived and served my community in the Anchorage. But these records offer the proof of my enclosure by 1393, around the age of 50. That was when I received my first bequest. The records of the church point to my varied supporters— a countess, a lawyer, a priest's endowment, and a rector. One other historical documentation of my existence is found in a book written by a certain English female who herself was on pilgrimage all over the medieval world. Her name was Marjorie Kemp, truly a spiritual seeker ahead of her time. She was 30 years younger than me, Uh, Marjorie recorded her actual visit with me in my anchorage and described me as, quote, a counselor and guide, a woman who greeted her guests with generosity of spirit and no small amount of truth. I'm very humbled by her words, and I remember her visit quite well. Known facts about women in general during the Dark Ages are few and far between. I could easily fit the description of having lived what's called a mixed life, combining contemplation and prayer with the demands of the secular world before my anchorage, though I describe myself as an unlettered creature. I wasn't a nun, though at midlife I did seek to devote myself more completely to prayer and chose the venue offered and available to me as an anchorite. I can also be presumed to be neither aristocratic nor impoverished, but rather a member of what was called the parish elite. This role would have afforded me the opportunity for the education available to a female. I also was able to develop close connections with the people of my parish, all coming from a variety of social backgrounds. I used my time in the anchorage to fulfill these tasks as well as the writing of the book that lay so heavily on my heart. As I mentioned, it was titled The Revelations of Divine Love. 
I needed to make sure that the guidance and love offered to the people at the window of my anchorage would continue ongoing beyond my lifetime, my cell, and my days. There were two versions of my book, actually. There was the short text, which I wrote right after I had my 16 showings, and then 20 years later when I entered the anchorage is when I took on the task of writing my second version, which is dramatically longer and theologically richer and more daring. The second text comes after meditating on my original visions for 20 years. Much insight came to me in that passage of time, hence a much fuller version of the visions. My second version, the longer text, is written with insight, freedom, and peace. And if you read my book, you will sense my stunning freedom, peace, and oneness with Jesus. In my book, I choose to present God as mother and Jesus' death on the cross as childbearing labor. I also describe Jesus as a gardener and an impoverished, itinerant laborer. Some of these ideas were very uh, almost heretical to the context of the times that I was living in, but I was very circumspect and discreet and uh, worked very carefully with one of the friars at St. Julian's Church to make sure I wouldn't be offensive to anyone. I didn't want to drive anyone away by my beliefs and what I had seen, but the truth is they were in very sharp contrast to the teachings of the church in those days. You'll see as I continue reading. My book was written for the common people of the church whom I loved, not for the hierarchy, the nuns, or the clerics. I wrote it at great personal risk and with extraordinary dedication, like a private and intimate letter to friends. It turned out to be written with such theological depth and spiritual insight that I find even to this day, in 2018, people's lives and hearts are challenged and transformed through my writings. Um, Now I'd like to just tell you a little background of my life, which I think you'll find interesting as well. When I started writing after my first showing, I would brew my own ink from a mixture made from oak galls and rainwater, aging it with a rusted iron nail. Then I would take this dark and murky liquid and pour it into an empty animal horn, which had been fitted to my desk. My paper was actually finely scraped animal skin, and I would use a goose quill pen along with a pen knife to quickly scratch out any mistakes I might make and also keep my goose quill pen a sharp point. Um, With those elementary tools, I began with these words, quote, These revelations were shown to a simple, unlettered creature the year of our Lord, 1373, the 13th day of May. So my writings begin. Our parish church was the center of our life. I attended daily Mass as was required in the common teaching of the Holy Church. We were taught that all human suffering was caused by sin and was a punishment meted out by God on the unworthy. We were taught that hell awaited any and all sinners, while Christ sat on his throne unmoved by human sorrows. 
Purgatory awaited most of us where souls would be purged of remaining sins, licked by continuous flames. We also learned that praying for the dead could actually help them leave the flames of purgatory sooner and enter the bliss of heaven. We were taught that punishments were fitted to the sins committed on earth. Liars would have their tongues sliced off, gluttons would have to drink poison, and so on. The Church Fathers used these types of teachings to instill fear in us in the hopes of not losing their congregants and that the loving image of Christ would somehow mold our behavior. In 1349, when I was just six years old, the first pestilence came, a plague from the southwest of England after the feast day of the Epiphany. This disease killed so many of my townspeople, my friends and relatives, and loved ones that after a while, even the priest's tinkling bell of home visits to see the dying ceased as well. Death from the plague was so prevalent, no one could keep up with the chores associated with caring for and burying the dead. This plague lasted three full years. Ultimately, what ended up happening is the bodies just became, they, what they ended up doing was digging huge pits and just throwing the bodies in and just setting them on fire. It was impossible to imagine the level of death this pestilence brought. When I was nine, in 1352, my whole life had been changed by this disease. But after three more years, life began to restore in our little city. We were all somewhat timid as we began to grow new gardens, establish new businesses, buy, sell, and trade. Though little is actually known about me, soon I would marry. By age 19, in the year 1362, I recall having had a husband and children. In my own writings, I have avoided sharing my own sorrows, losses, and loves. This was a time wherein I wrote, quote, When I had a great longing and desire of God's gift of heaven, I wanted to be delivered of this world and of this life. For oft times I beheld the woe that is here and the wellness and blessed being that is there. This made me to mourn and earnestly to long, and also that my own wretchedness and sloth and weariness, that I did not want to live and to travail as it fell to me to do. My losses became greater than my strength to bear them. Now the second plague was upon us. Our understanding of sickness and disease was so lacking, we ascribed all such circumstances which were beyond our control to God's doing. This plague was evidence of, as we would say in Latin, bellum dei contra omni, the war of God against humanity. One remaining sermon delivered during this time of plague described God as this. God hath his quiver full of arrows, full of pestilence, Fervors, fevers, all manners of diseases. He shoots them into our friends and families, ourselves, and only one but he himself can pull them out. But I saw little correlation between who was killed and who survived. Innocent children and prostitutes alike were killed. Clergy and parishioner, friar and laborer all died without distinction. This led me to really ponder the role of sin in our lives. Why wouldn't a loving God prevent sin 
if it truly caused so much damage and we had to suffer these types of punishments. It was now ten years past the second pestilence and plague. Life in Norwich had again resumed, but my dear heart and soul continued to languish in light of all my severe losses and sorrows. I was 30 years old at this time, and I fell ill right around springtime, right near Easter. I couldn't get out of bed, and I remember burning with fever. I became semi-conscious, losing all grasp of reality. I lost feeling in my arms and legs. My breathing became labored. My mother called for the parish priest so I could receive the last meal of communion bread before my death. He came and delivered me my last meal, yet I clung to life. Was I meant to live? I wondered what purpose my death would serve other than I would be delivered from more suffering, obtaining immense joy. I determined to keep my eyes on God until I got my answer. And so what I did is I just kept my eyes lifted to the ceiling the whole time, expecting something from God, and I wouldn't look anywhere else. My mother had the priest come back three days later as I was still alive, and this time he came back with a very large crucifix, and he told me to set my gaze upon that crucifix as he held it for me at the front part of my bed. He was hoping to bring comfort to my dying body and my distraught soul with this crucifix. But then, as I gazed upon this crucifix, a really strange thing began to happen. A brilliant light began to emanate from this crucifix, and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. It came alive in front of me, and I saw the Lord looking directly at me, and I saw the wounds in his body were beginning to actually bleed and flow with life and blood and loss. The Jesus on that cross looked at me with eyes of love I had never seen or experienced before. His body was alive, bleeding from the woundings received in his scourging and crucifixion. I wondered why my bedding wasn't soaked in the blood. Yet I couldn't remove my eyes from the scene unfolding in front of me. Then I heard him say, With this the fiend is overcome. His death was so vivid, so real, I would later write, If I had known the pain he suffered, I would not have asked for an understanding of it. This was the time in these next three days where I had my 15 showings, and the 16th one came one day later. The only way I could avoid sharing this pain was to look up into the heavens, yet I found my gaze fixed, unmovable, on my Lord's death. I chose to stay with him in his suffering because of my love for him. Observant others standing by my bedside thought I was slipping in and out of consciousness, yet I myself was experiencing an extremely deep and intimate time of communion, fellowship, language, visions, love, and intimacy from my Lord Jesus, who was before me, living and yet dying on the cross. These visions lasted for days. 
Onlookers thought I was raving mad and had lost my mind. Due to the severe illness at age 30, I received my 16 showings over the course of four days. Um, The showings were graphic visions of Jesus' bleeding heart, the wound in his side, his mother Mary, the blood and water, and messages and words he was speaking to my mind and heart. It was a revolutionary act of re-envisioning the relationship between God and the human soul. Though devoted to the church, my visions contradicted the God I had come to know in the church. It took great courage in the face of the punishment of death, penning my words under the guidance of a friar or priest with whom I was in constant contact, lest I misrepresent the glorious gospel I had received. Earlier in my life as an adolescent, in childlike innocence, I had once expressed three deep desires I wanted God to know about. As a child, my, my life was shaped around the faith I had in the church and the God I longed to know better. Out of this grew my three desires, and this is what they were. My first desire was to have a mind of Christ's passion, a sensual recollection of what it would have been like to be with Christ while he suffered on the cross. My second deep desire was to have a bodily sickness in which I would draw as close as possible to death's door without passing through it. I know that might sound strange to Western ears, but to me I so desired to know what the soul facing death would see as his or her next horizon, I was willing to take my chances and visit that place. My last desire was for what I called these three wounds, contrition, compassion, and longing for God. Of the three desires I had expressed in my youth, almost carelessly in my early life, through this experience of terrible sickness at age 30, all my desires were fulfilled in this vision, both terrible and lovely. One, I now had a mind of the passion, more than I had known possible, a a mind of the passion that would take me years to communicate and express through words and writings and prayers and understandings and conversations with my close friar at the Church of St. Julian. My second um, fulfillment was I did experience a bodily sickness that propelled me into a new landscape, and it gave me a new paradigm of viewing the Almighty, being able to finally see Him with eyes of love, surpassing the Church's guilt, sin, and punishment theology, giving me an ability to grasp the understanding of his all-encompassing eternal love. And three, my heart was split wide open with contrition, compassion, and an experience of oneness that I still find hard to describe. At one startling moment in my visions, Jesus looked directly at me from the cross and he said, Lo, how I love thee. It still makes me cry.
for this one startling moment, I believed them. Early in life, I was taught that the end of the world was near, that we might satisfy the wrath and anger of God by giving to the poor and avoiding swearing. After my showings, I realized so much, too much to behold and take in in one lifetime. I realized this truth, and these are her words, the soul must perform two duties. One is that we reverently marvel. The other is that we humbly endure, ever taking pleasure in God. I understood the right relationship between God and the soul was not primarily guilt for sin, but rather wonder, release, and unity. The righteousness required of us is simply this, delight in God's good world. I saw that God and the soul shared something so intimate that even sin could not disrupt it. The soul and God were one. Or in other words, the soul is intricately one, O-N-E-D, both to the body and to God at the same time. I wrestled deeply with understanding what I had seen in my visions of God because the God of my visions and the God of the Church of St. Julian to which I was devoted contradicted each other, sometimes painfully. One of my most famous and well-loved writings has become this one. If there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for it was not shown to me. But this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be exceeding well. If I were to pick a theme for my life, it would have been this, which I wrote, The love of God encloses us. And with those words you can see how it was easy for me to enter my cell, my anchorage, at age 50, and become enclosed in the love of God. Now, there was one more reading. I have another really, I have another uh, really nice book by someone named Marabi Starr. She's, I guess you would say, a modern-day mystic, and she actually chose to do a whole book on St. Julian. And you will find... Uh, the people that didn't hear me before, that there's so much on Julian. I mean, people are writing songs about her words, and there's prayer groups, and there, there is so much going on around Julian and her life and her writings and prayer groups. Um, you'll have a good time searching it out on the Internet. I just want to read one um, short little writing from the showings of Julian of Norwich by Marabi Starr. This little section is called No Such Thing. Julian of Norwich is known for her radically optimistic theology. Nowhere is this better illumined than in her reflections on sin. When Julian asked God to teach her about this troubling issue, he opened his divine being, and all she could see there was love. Every lesser truth dissolved in that boundless ocean. She tried with all her might to line up what she had learned from the church and what her beloved directly revealed to her. Quote, But the truth is, 
Julian confesses, I did not see any sin. I believe that sin has no substance, not a particle of being, and cannot be detected at all except by the pain it causes. It is only the pain that has substance for a while, and it serves to purify us and make us know ourselves and ask for mercy. Julian informs us that the suffering we cause ourselves through our acts of greed and unconsciousness is the only punishment we endure. God, who is all love, is incapable of wrath. And so it is a complete waste of time, Julian realized, to wallow in guilt. The truly humble thing to do when we have stumbled is to hoist ourselves to our feet as swiftly as we can and rush into the arms of God where we will remember who we really are. For Julian, sin has no substance because it is the absence of all that is good and kind, loving and caring, all that is of God. Sin is nothing but separation from our divine source. And separation from the Holy One is nothing but illusion. We are always and forever connected in love with our Beloved. Therefore, sin is not real. Only love is real. Julian did not require a divinity degree to to arrive at this conclusion. She simply needed to travel to the boundary land of death where she was enfolded in the loving embrace of the Holy One, who assured her that he had loved her since before he made her and would love her till the end of time. And it is with this great love he revealed that he loves all of us, all beings. Our only task is to remember this and rejoice. In the end, Julian says, it will all be clear. Quote, then none of us will be moved in any way to say, Lord, if only things had been different, all would have been well, she writes. Instead, we shall all proclaim in one voice, Beloved one, may you be blessed, because it is so. All is well. So thank you for listening, and I I hope you enjoyed learning about Julian.